You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Stay with us as we start surfing the Criterion Channel. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is critic and YouTube creator Celeste de la Cabra. Celeste, I am so happy to have you today. We've already been talking a little bit in some of the Patreon pre-show. We're going to be talking about the films of Ishiro Honda. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for the invitation and for the space, uh, Josh. I really appreciate it. I've been a pretty big fan of your work and this show in particular for several years now. And um I've been listening to the Patreon feed for a minute, so it's very exciting for me to get to be here. I still remember when you uh, first started engaging with the show, and you've been one of the most loyal listeners and supporters. And so uh, I'm just I'm really excited to have this conversation about uh, a filmmaker that, while I've known a little bit about, uh, this has given me the opportunity to really dig into a little bit more of his background and uh, some of the films that I just haven't started really uh, looking mm-hmm. at as deeply. Yeah. So uh, thanks for uh, taking this time. Yeah, of course. Um, Ishiro Honda is a filmmaker that has meant a lot to me. And Godzilla in particular is a pretty big part of like my brand at this point. So <laughs> I'm really excited to uh, get into some deep cuts with you. That's awesome. That's great. Well, before we really um, dig into all of this, I would love to uh, have you take a moment to introduce yourself to to our listeners. You know, how did you first come to Criterion and the Criterion channel? What was it that drew you to these films? Sure. So, yeah, my name is Celeste LaCabra. I use they and she pronouns and I guess to get a background started, um, I've always I've always been into films and I've always wanted to be more into films, but mm. uh, I just never had the I guess it always felt like a big time investment or something. Mm. Uh, there were always various barriers throughout high school and college to prevent me from really diving in as I have in the past few years. And I was primarily into music for a long time, going to shows like God, two or three times a week or something. Mm. And at a certain point, there was this global pandemic that <laughs> may or may not still be happening, depending on who you ask. Yeah, uh, it is. But yeah, at that point, I couldn't go to shows anymore. So I just had all this time and money. <laughs> like, I didn't know what to do with it. And then I just like, I guess we can, I'll start watching some movies. And, you know, Criterion had always been like, I knew that's where you went to get the good stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like. I've always been a person that likes to dig deep in whatever I'm interested in. 
I'm very rarely satisfied with the surface level. And so that was sort of, I knew that it was sort of like a kind of at home film course that I could take, start getting into their stuff. So I kind of simultaneously got into that and just my own personal Blu-ray collecting. Um, that really just kind of took off. But it wasn't until I got a subscription to the Criterion channel, I think, which would have been, I don't know, less than six months into the pandemic. And I, I didn't know it existed. And I ran across it somewhere. And I was like, well, this seems to make sense <laughs> to check this out <laughs> this way. You know, yeah, uh, this seems pretty cool. So I signed up and it was really the way that they curate their bundles, I think, is what really did it for me. Like just going through a director's bundle or going through a thematic bundle to kind of because they it's intimidating right when you first get into mm -hmm. it and it's like a thousand plus films that you have to choose from if it was just a list like that would not help anybody <laughs> at least not introductorily you know yeah but you know they do such a wonderful job with these bundles and these curations i just got like obsessed yeah that was kind of my uh cinematic crash course i guess was going through the Criterion channel. And then I got more into the physical side of things and I got into all the Facebook groups and I just learned so much from people like you and Aaron West and Michael Hutchins and all these very cool people that I'm fortunate enough to know at this point. Yeah. And then at a certain point, it was obvious that this was like what I was passionate about and I was pretty good at articulating my thoughts on it. So I decided to start a YouTube channel which is something that I wanted to do for a while anyway. But now I actually had a point of focus and a kind of niche that I could create and carve into. So I do a lot of like Blu-ray update videos and discussing things like the Criterion Collection. And I've really been into Vinegar Syndrome lately. So I've been making a lot of videos about that stuff. But I think the thing that I put the most effort into and the thing that I find the most rewarding are the in-depth analysis videos that I do reviewing various yeah. films, typically newer releases, just to help me out in the algorithm or whatever. But those have been doing really well and they've been getting a really good reception. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where I've been at. That's awesome. Content has kind of slowed down as of late uh, due to personal circumstances, but I have no intentions of stopping. I, I only want to make it bigger, you know? So mm -hmm. yeah, if uh, anyone listening thinks that that sounds like a cool fun time it will be so come hang out <laughs> that's awesome yeah and we'll have uh links to your uh, youtube channel in the show notes so that way people can check out your work because i think that's that's yeah. really exciting you know i think well thank you uh, and i appreciate that yeah anytime anytime you can sit with and engage with the art on a deeper level i think that to me is uh, that's that's what we're here for right we're not here to mm -hmm. just yeah do surface level uh exactly <laughs> explorations you know and uh yeah. i think that to me is really really exciting that that's the work that you're doing there so well thank yeah. you yeah yeah i try not to be i feel like i can be a little bit more honest here but at certain platforms <laughs> that i guessed on I, I try not to sound too pretentious mm -hmm. but i'm kind of mm -hmm. like just so much of the content out there even in like the like film criticism space mm -hmm. seems to end right where I think it starts to get interesting. And yeah. I'm just like, can we, can we keep going? Can we go a little deeper here? You know? And you know, that surface level stuff. I always try to say this because I do believe it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Like for a certain person, for a, a certain level of engagement with films as entertainment, I think that's perfectly fine. But mm -hmm. you know, I'm more interested in viewing it as art, as like a piece of literature 
or a yeah. text to be analyzed. And so that's what I'm about. And that's what a lot of people in this specifically, this criterion space seem to be about. So I think that's kind of why yeah. it's connected so seamlessly, I think. No, that's great. That's fantastic. Well, before we really dive into the the discussion on Ishiro Honda, I do want to just quickly thank all of our Patreon supporters for uh, all of the support of the show. And uh, it, it really is such a help to keep the show going. And if you do want to support the show, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Josh Hornbeck and you get... Uh, uh, early episodes of the show and unedited episodes of the show so uh, you can find out more information about the supporting the show there and uh, we're also if you've noticed doing a slight change in format for the show so you will have noticed that in the last episode where we are digging into the permanent collection by looking at bundles of the permanent streaming only library and uh, Celeste, you reached out to me uh, to suggest uh, talking about some of the films of Ishiro Honda. And so while there are a lot of films of Ishiro Honda, we're only going to take a look at the first three of the permanent streaming films here. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about these with you, as I said earlier. And uh, Ishiro Honda, uh, tell me a little bit about why you were so eager to discuss uh his films and uh what what is it that drew you to this filmmaker yeah real quick i want to co-sign your uh patreon plug as a certified patron of this show <laughs> for a number of years i want to tell the viewers at home that the patreon bonus content is absolutely worth the price of admission and that this show is worth supporting so absolutely do that now ishiro honda so when i was growing up my younger brother got super into Godzilla. Um, mm -hmm. He has a habit, I guess it's sort of his personality, where he picks a thing and he goes all in on it for a certain amount of time before he moves on to the next thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And for a while it was Godzilla. You know, I may be characterizing it unfairly because he still <laughs> loves Godzilla and he still loves a lot of these things that he got into, but that was like the focus for a bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he got really into it. And so we would watch these Godzilla films together and I just thought they were so great. Like I thought, like we watched a lot of the sillier ones, like Son of Godzilla was a favorite of ours, yeah, which I still yeah. think is great, by the way. And that was a favorite just because it's so cute and it's so funny. It's very like four kids, you know, but we watched the original Gojira and I was like, shit, that was amazing. I just thought it was so emotional and so incredible. And I don't know, through the years, it kind of became a part of how we bonded growing up it's sort of something that just stayed with me both thematically and aesthetically i watched the uh the reboot when it came out in 2014 in theaters mm -hmm. and i love that one too though i've been reticent to rewatch it because i'm not sure how i'll feel about it anymore but <laughs> yeah uh and then at a certain point i was like man i never actually sat down and watched all of these so me and my partner we started watching every single one of them after i bought that uh criterion godzilla set yeah, just probably my favorite thing in my whole collection and my favorite <laughs> thing they've ever done. It's just so incredible. And so rewatching the first Godzilla film, I was like, I hope I haven't overhyped this in my mind. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's become this sort of mythical thing that really affected me when I was younger. But I rewatched it and I liked it better. Like, yeah. I think that is a perfect film and it's in my top 10 of all time, probably. Yeah. yeah. And we're almost done, actually, in terms of the entire 
Godzilla saga. We're coming up at the end of the uh, Millennium Saga, and mm. then you know it's just Shin Godzilla and the American ones, which I, I guess I'll rewatch too. But yeah, I mean, Ishiro Honda is kind of the godfather of this whole thing, as it were. He is the creator of what I think is and remains the best one, which is the original. But he also did such an excellent job in adapting the Godzilla narrative through, you know, market demands and different demographic shifts and things like that. Like he he made great films with silly Godzilla, too, you know, and I'm a big fan of his Mothra film, too. I don't know. I've just been a big fan for a minute. And I was listening to your episode with Michael and he was suggesting maybe in Patreon territory. This was he was suggesting he was like, maybe somebody could reach out about the Ashira Honda bundle. That would be fun. And I was like, oh, it's me. It's me. I'll do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I've been meaning to dive into this bundle anyway, because I've been meaning to see a lot of these deep cuts that I've never seen. Like I've never seen I had before this. I'd never seen any of the films we're going to talk about today. Oh, Um, nice. Yeah. So I was like, this is a perfect opportunity to yeah. finally, you know, break into that. So yeah, I'm stoked. That's great. My first podcast experience was talking about one of the sillier Godzilla movies, the one where the little kid imagines playing with Godzilla. Oh, oh, that one uh, is a that one's all monsters. All attack. monsters attack. That one's yes, my that yes. one's my least favorite yeah. <laughs> yeah. of them because it's basically a clip show. But yes, I mean, yes. I guess it's still interesting in some regards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I joined David Blakesley's Criterion Reflections podcast to uh, to talk mm-hmm. about that film, and to prep for that, I watched everything that was on the Criterion channel, which included Rodan, it included War of the Gargantuas, it didn't include mm-hmm. a lot of these other films that have just been added to uh, the Janus Films and Criterion mm-hmm. Library. But there was, you know, a lot of the Godzilla films. So I, I did a deep dive over about three weeks into the world of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. I had a coworker back when I worked at Blockbuster just after college uh, who was a huge Godzilla fan. So I watched a lot of the Millennium uh, Godzilla films. So, uh, you know, I, I have a I have a real fondness for Godzilla and the the character mm-hmm. and, and a lot of those the the era. And I'd seen the original Godzilla and was really impressed by it and, and rewatching mm-hmm. it again. Like you, it's a masterpiece, right? You know, it's yes. it's it's this exceptional film. And in doing that deep dive, I was really struck by, again, how how wide ranging these films are, uh, and the, mm-hmm. the type and style they are. But watching watching these these three Honda films that are out of the God's main Godzilla line. I, I am just really impressed by Honda himself as a director. And when you remove Godzilla, when you remove this iconic character from the equation, you really get to focus on who he is as a craftsperson and who he is as a filmmaker. And it's really impressive uh, and so, yeah, I just I'm I'm excited to continue to watch more of his films, too. Yeah, for sure. Just to give a little background on uh, Honda, he was really interested as a young person in film. He did an apprenticeship, did the long Japanese apprenticeship in cinema and worked as an assistant director before the war, then served in the war and then uh, was an assistant director after the war. Uh, it seems that his time in World War II really shaped him. 
Uh, he was stationed in China for most of the war and in some of his journals and in, in a lot of the 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 writing and the reflections uh, that he gave after the war, he really tried to behave humanely towards everyone uh, that he came in contact with. So I, I, I'm impressed with how he attempted to behave differently towards the 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 people that he was occupying and he seemed to really take to heart uh the fact that he was an occupying force in china at that time he was a prisoner of war and that experience shaped him as well so you know there there's just this the sense that that his experiences there then you can see those things filtering out into the films that he makes later. He was promoted to a feature director in 1951. Uh, he was initially trying to develop a World War II film that was openly critical of uh, Japanese policy in the war, but the studio rejected it because they felt like it was too soon to be that critical of uh, uh, Japanese policy during World War II. His first feature film was a drama about uh, pearl divers. It used a lot of underwater photography. Again, we're seeing how he starts to use special effects and incorporate that even in his early dramas. Then uh, he did two other war films that were not quite as uh, hypercritical of the war. And then uh, he moved on to do Godzilla. That was his fourth film. And that pattern would then be repeated throughout his career where he'd do uh, a number of dramas or melodramas and then uh, move then to the science fiction monster films that he would do. And he eventually directed 44 films over 59 years. So he had quite a career over the course of his time. Yeah, for sure. I was also taking some time to just check out the history of his filmography because I'd never really looked at it from beginning to end like that. And what I found interesting was how much he returns to just dramatic storytelling or just yeah. serious non-genre focused, not to say that genre films aren't serious, but you know, mm -hmm. that kind of straightforward yeah. drama and war films and things like that. And I mean, I've been saying this for years that Godzilla is really just a drama with like, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's also a horror film. I think it's mm -hmm. also a sci-fi film. But at its core, I think it really is just a drama about people and about politics. And I just think it's interesting how he keeps returning to that. You kind of had mm, American studios kind of bastardizing his work in between here. Uh, but he would always kind of return to these dramas. And even with the mm -hmm. earlier sci-fi monster films, you know, like Rodan, I think, is also just a drama. Yeah. Like, that is also a sci-fi, but it is a very serious, very thoughtful, yeah. very emotional film, too. And I think at a certain point you see in his career that, like, people were, like, a certain type of thing was filling butts in seats. And so mm -hmm. we get into, like, this mostly sci-fi territory, kind of ending with Terror of Mechagodzilla, which is, I think, a great film, too. But... Yeah, like we were kind of talking about, I don't think he ever really like sold out or anything. Like, I don't mm -hmm. think any of these films are bad or are fundamentally unserious or I guess making a mockery of his previous work or anything like that. I just think he was really good at like reading the room and adapting. So that's kind of my general overview of his work, I think. No, I think that's I think that's a really great, great read on it that that he still 
injected drama. And that's something that struck mm-hmm. me too, that, that uh, I especially want to talk about when we talk about the Mysterians um, uh, a little later, I think there's some really fascinating things that struck me as we were talking, but yeah. I let's, agree that that one's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into Rodan. Um, I think, you know, here's a character that crosses over with Godzilla quite a few times uh, in the course of the Godzilla films. But this is one that I felt, especially in the early, you know, about the first third of the film, uh, really mm-hmm. plays out almost as a as a creepy horror film uh, as well. Mm-hmm. I was struck especially with the the moody and the 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 atmospheric lighting and the mines, the monster that we don't see at first, and the really high and kind of grisly body count at the beginning. Yeah, it, it is a it's a chilling film at the beginning uh, of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, about a mine, sure. uh, mine that is, or miners that run into uh, giant caterpillar like creatures that um, begin killing the miners and, uh, and then begin overrunning the village where the mine is. And uh, later we discover that they actually are nestled right next to an egg for a giant, pterodon uh that they begin to call rodan uh and then once rodan hatches rodan uh begins to fly all over japan wreaking havoc and we get much of the same monster mayhem that you get in a lot of monster movies with downed fighter jets and flying over buildings and destroying buildings and uh, the military can't stop it, and they have to find some way to uh, stop this creature who is terrorizing uh, the countryside. And Celeste, you know, so this is your first time watching it. What were some of your thoughts about the film? About the what what you were seeing in the the film as you were watching it? So this was one that my brother had watched by himself back in the day. Um, I didn't watch it with him for whatever reason. And I remember asking him how it was. And he was like, it made me cry. It was really sad. (laughs) And so that's kind of the only thing I knew about it for like 10 years or something. So I was kind of like, I like sad films, but I have to be in a mood for it. You know, but yeah, watching it, I was also kind of taken with the first half of it before Mm -hmm. we even see Rodan there's these cool like insect creatures kind of terrorizing people yeah there's this sort of like into the depths of like the crypt of the mines where these people are trying to you know learn the secrets or whatever it's just a really cool setup and everything (laughs) I just like looked up and saw my Rodan figure on my desk so (laughs) that's just that just feels apropos to what we're what we're doing here just uh yeah I just got him up there um because I am a fan as a part of the Godzilla universe. So I always kind of considered this film to be in that umbrella, which I mean, I guess it is, but also with how it ends, like they kind of just throw him back in there, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, for these other films. Yeah. I mean, the things that really stand out to me, I mean, I'm going to have to talk about this several times throughout this. So I guess we might as well start here. Shiro Honda seems to be, almost exclusively interested in like one theme throughout his filmography which is like indirect response to the nuclear bomb and this kind of friction between science and nature and this idea of like human hubris and like our chickens coming to roost and things like that yeah um you know, sometimes when I start a new Ashira Honda film and I immediately tell that it's the exact same thing <laughs> thematically, 
I could yeah. feel a bit like, okay, this again. But I mean, it was when I was watching Varen and I like my girlfriend was watching it with me for a bit. And I was just like, you know, sometimes I think that uh, it's a little repetitive, but I also feel like once you are, you live through two nuclear bombs, like you kind of just reserve the right to talk about that as much as you want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I agree. Like what's, how do you even begin to approach Mm-hmm. the trauma and the fallout of something like that like godzilla does a pretty damn good job on its own that first film but like i'm not gonna begrudge him for coming back to it over and over and over again you know yeah um so this is almost kind of like i mean it's sort of the same idea and the same structure of like nuclear bomb testing kind of creating this unforeseen horrific consequence that they have to then manage you know but in terms of the actual filmmaking, I think what really stood out to me were uh, the special effects and the cinematography. Like, I don't know, watching, you know, that that might be part of why I gravitate towards old horror films so much, too, is just because they're so rife with this stuff. These exemplary kind of demonstrations of practical effects, it just feels so organic and so passionate to me. I don't know. I hear, you know people brought up on newer films when they watch an older one and they're just like, Oh, I can see the string. Like, I know that it's like, it looks fake. I can tell it's fake. And I've always just been kind of like, I mean, I don't know about you, but like when I watch dude, man, turn into the Hulk or whatever, like I am also aware that that is fake. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. just because it's more realistic looking, like that doesn't mean that my brain is suddenly tricked into thinking I'm actually seeing something in camera or something like I don't know. They both are fake and look fake to me, but one of them looks more authentic and looks more. I mean, it's real because they're actually filming something right. Like, and this is not to say that I don't like digital effects. I think that digital effects have opened up a lot of new avenues for what people can do. And I think that that's awesome. I just always think that it should be like a last resort or compliment to enhance your practical effects. But now I'm going on a whole rant. But anyway, (laughs) That That is all to say that I just adore watching everything that is happening in this film from the set pieces to the, you know, the tanks going around and all the all the monster mayhem. And the way I like to say it is I'm always going to be an ambassador for a dude in a suit Godzilla as opposed to CG Godzilla. I just yeah. love it, you know? Yeah, yeah I, I was also really struck in this film. I, I know this is uh, Ishiro Honda's first film in color. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was so struck uh, by the the tactility of the the practical effects and just how how tangible everything feels. You know the the model work here is so good. the mm-hmm. the ways that when Rodan flies over a building, the building crumbles, it just it looks yeah. great. <laughs> it it's it's. Yes, you know, again, you know that it's a model, but I think the mm-hmm. the combination of models and matte paintings and yeah. and everything, you can see that he is continuing to grow in his craft from what he learned doing Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really really just excellent work here. I love the the way he's doing this uh and putting this all together. He's beginning to find something really special here in these in this film yeah for sure talking about the 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 nuclear themes i was also really struck by the we're even getting early references here to global warming we're getting these these conversations about Mm -hmm. 
things that we're still talking about today, right? Yeah. And there's a prescience yeah. to this film that I think yeah. it, it makes the film feel even continue to feel relevant today, which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. As you talk about the the Ishiro Honda template, something that really strikes me too is that he always foregrounds the human and the human mm-hmm. um, drama so that it, it yeah. feels grounded. It doesn't, it isn't just giant monsters flying around and mm-hmm. uh, terrorizing people, but that we get the real human emotion between the the characters. So we've got Shigeru and his relationship with uh, Kyo. And we've got her worry about her brother Goro. And we have these this human drama that plays out at the foreground. And then we have the the giant monsters that kind of terrorize them as well. And uh, and I, I appreciate that he never really loses the focus in this film uh, between those two. Yeah, I think that that's the core idea here that he comes to again and again is these sort of uh, unintended consequences of warfare and nuclear testing in particular. But yeah, you also touched upon the environmental themes, which it's always a bit depressing watching films this old (laughs) and feeling as though uh, there was no progress or even that this is kind of progressive like that's depressing but (laughs) i know it is there (laughs) yeah yeah something else that struck me is um just the way rodan's kind of terror comes from the sky it Mm -hmm. couldn't help but make me think of the fire bombings in japan and just the oh, for sure, yeah. The mm-hmm. the terror of not knowing whether your village was going to be attacked, whether your town was going to be attacked by allied firebombing raids. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh so I think there's also this this additional layer on top of that that, you know, again, Japan is dealing with so much trauma in the aftermath of World War yeah, II really. that I think Honda's just mining all of this this trauma and creating this cathartic experience uh through cinema and i think you know that's what what horror does really well is is using our fears to create this cathartic moment for us to all kind of explore our fears so i think it's it's yeah Yeah, for sure (laughs) this to me is such a strong film it's it's my favorite of the three that we're going to talk about today i really love it it would even probably rank decently high in like my Godzilla ranking overall. I just really, really got a lot out of it. Yeah, I guess that reminded me of this caveat I wanted to quickly throw out and that I always feel a little bit strange about talking about these issues as a non-Japanese person. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, I am not Japanese. I've never been to Japan. I'm not a Japanese scholar. I'm not an expert in their history. So if there's anything that I say that is inaccurate or ill-informed, I mean, feel free to tell me or i'm definitely not claiming to be the be all end all on interpreting this work or anything like that you know i just want to make it very clear that i have limitations in regards to discussing these films and i guess the last thing i wanted to touch on is how sad the ending is and how Mm -hmm. good it is it's like really heartbreaking and it does one of my favorite things that i see throughout his work which is that in the end it grants compassion and it reminds us to care about the creatures that are also technically fall out of this situation Mm -hmm. you know maybe that's just me as an animal rights person reading that into it but 
Yeah. Like the people are just watching them with like, and they're just realizing how awful this is that they're just burning to death. And that the second one like goes to burn with the first one out of like love or solidarity or something, you know, it's not entirely clear, but that's definitely how it feels. And, you know, it kind of takes this moment at the end to be like, Hey, the Rodan is not the bad guy here. You know, Mm -hmm. Rodan is a victim in this as well. It's really the people creating the problem in the first place. And Rodan is just a symptom who becomes victimized at the end. And this is really heartbreaking and a really powerful way to end the film and kind of round it out thematically too. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that it didn't hit me quite as hard as it, as the ending of Godzilla does. I think the ending of Godzilla is no, not quite. Yeah, it's perfect. It just it's mm-hmm. absolutely devastating. But mm-hmm. I I think that when we get to that ending, it just is. It is gut wrenching, and the the performers and I think the performers in the suits don't get as much love as yeah, for they sure. should. <laughs> Because what they are doing uh, at the the end is really, really striking, and it is really, really powerful. The final, the final mm-hmm. moments. I completely agree yeah. with you there. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like it'd be so easy to, and it's like the natural thing to do to create their deaths as like this moment of victory or catharsis mm-hmm. when it's really just pure tragedy and mm-hmm. like we fucked up somewhere. Like yeah. this is not good like this this was not a good result that has happened you know yeah and i think that's yeah. actually something that i really appreciate about uh the films of his that i have seen is that there is never a sense that the 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 creatures deserve what comes to them mm-hmm. yeah that it is defeating the the creature is never as cut and dried as yay we mm-hmm. won and the the world moves on but there is always a, yeah. a sadness there and you know i i know that that uh honda has was inspired some by king kong and you know there's a there's a yeah. sadness in king kong and so i think that that there is this this long history of taking these um these giant monster stories and and allowing them to be really poignant by the end yeah well, is there anything else you wanted to say before we move on to the Mysterions? No, I'm just thinking about the ending of Roland Emmerich's. I mean, <laughs> it's called a disaster film, and that's how I would describe it, too. Yeah, uh, I know, I know. His take on Godzilla. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the ending of that film and just how much it personifies how little anybody involved with that project understood the character yeah. or the series that they were just ripping off or stealing, I guess, yeah. would be a better yeah. word for it. I don't know. Yeah. I, I hate that film so much, but <laughs> <laughs> that's another discussion for another day. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would uh, 100% agree with you on that. <laughs> well, The Mysterians is a really fascinating film because it's not quite the giant monster film. It's described more as a t- tokatsu a science fiction film. It's That's a genre that I don't really know much about, but it is the story of scientists who discover a giant robot who goes on a rampage and they destroy the giant robot and then discover a some sort of a dome that could be a ship might not be a ship embedded in the earth and they find that there are aliens living there and the aliens say look we just sent the robot there to tell you uh, it's futile to fight us. We just want a small patch of land and five women. 
so that we can uh, reproduce without genetic defects. So here are the women we want. That's what that's what you're going to get. And then Earth unites mm-hmm. to try to fight them off. It's a it's a really unique film from Honda based on what I've seen of his, and mm-hmm. it's a fascinating piece. What what do you think about this one uh, based on the the things that you've seen and uh, your dive into this type of film or the 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 Japanese monster movies and other things that you've seen so far? Yeah, I mean this one. I think it's thematically the most interesting of the mm-hmm. three that we're going to talk about. I think yeah. that there is just so much here that we could unpack about this. I, I just was like enraptured by it. And like every new scene gave me something more interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. And I really wasn't sure where it was headed or where Honda was landing thematically or politically on this until the ending when it kind of becomes very obvious. But, you know, it's kind of, again, it's sort of his same pet themes, mm-hmm. but explored in a very different and kind of unique way. Where as opposed to in the monster movies, like the monster, while like we were just talking about is a victim and is a source of compassion for the viewer. I mean, it's kind of tantamount to like a hurricane or something like it doesn't you can't really reason with it or try to get in its head or something like that. Whereas the Mysterians are like very morally ambiguous for a second and continue to be like they throw you curveballs a lot and you're not really sure what to make of them for a while. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely feels like one of his films because it's still so rooted in genre traditions and it's yeah. definitely like a straightforward sci-fi, but again, like we don't have this this literal monster to kind of fall back on, like we're kind of dealing with what are essentially just like superhuman people. I think the way it starts where you know, there's this tragic crazy stuff that's happening and then, you know, when they finally see the Mysterians and hear their terms of conditions, it kind of creates like almost like a trolley problem kind of thing mm-hmm. where there's absolutely like the threat of nuclear holocaust under their conditions yeah and they're like they're very outwardly pacifistic and they're like saying they don't want any violence and that's like not what they're about and like hey just give us these very reasonable demands and we'll leave you alone and it'll be good and chill yeah and the the part that is really kind of difficult and sticks out is how they just pick five specific women that they've decided they want Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of it kind of forces the viewer to be in the japanese government's shoes or in the scientist's shoes where it's like again it kind of creates this trolley problem where it's like well we could sacrifice these five women to maybe save the world or we don't do that and maybe all die like it's very interesting how it sets it up that was the thing that really struck yeah. me too, right? First, I'm like, well, it's only a p- small patch of land, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. That that to me seems like a a minor mm-hmm. inconvenience, but then you're wanting to just force these five women into uh, servitude they're and like, sexual slavery. Yeah, they're like exactly. They're like conscripted to be like brood mares, and it's like, yeah. Well, you know, I, I could see a person being like, well, it's only five people versus like the planet Earth. But it's yeah. also like there's something fundamental about what they're asking there, you know? Well, and this actually makes me makes me think because, you know, in looking at Honda's background in the war, I know that he was his first posting was as supervisor of a comfort station uh, in China. Mm-hmm. So he was in charge of the comfort women that, that Japan had set up for their soldiers. So he was in charge of 
the forced prostitution of Korean and mm -hmm. Chinese women. And so suddenly, you know, and I, I just read about this today, and it, it makes me think that this actually must have been, and I know that he was actually really against this, and he was, he really did not like this posting, and he tried to make lives more humane for everyone involved. This actually seems to have more resonance than knowing that, that there was a yeah. a sense that, no, this type of servitude is not right no matter what the benefits are for anyone right mm -hmm. so yeah yeah that's fascinating i am just think about so that. glad that that you said that because i didn't know that and that kind of brings me to something else i wanted to bring up and i wasn't sure exactly how much of a stretch this might have been or exactly mm -hmm. where the film was where the lens of critique was from mm -hmm. the, the the filmmaker's perspective but the thing that I kept coming back to was that this really struck me as a critique of colonialism. Yeah. How like these outsiders kind of just plant their flag there and it's like yeah. not really optional, but they're making it feel like it is. And mm -hmm. they're saying that they only have these reasonable demands, but yeah. it's very obvious very quickly that that's not all they want. And they're not actually going to respect any terms of conditions that are set forth or anything like mm -hmm. that. And so, yeah. again, I kind of actually did a brief cursory look into Japanese history again, just to be like, now, is this a self-critique of Japanese colonialism or is this a critique of colonialism that they might have been experiencing on some level? And hearing what you just said, it feels pretty obvious that that's what he's talking about and critiquing yeah. and probably got away with it because it's so <laughs> abstracted from the actual thing that he's referring to, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I think that that's, I mean, especially if you know that, I think it's pretty obvious in there. Yeah. And it strikes me too that it's both self-critique and, you know, it's also possibly a little bit about American occupation too, right? Mm -hmm. I think there can yeah, be both was, of those yeah. things that, that it's holding in its hand mm -hmm. at the same time that that any form of colonialism carries with it that implicit threat of violence, um, yes. No matter how how beneficent it seems to be on on the right. surface, and yeah, I'm glad I found that that you know I, I did some mm -hmm. digging and tried to find some writing about what he actually thought about it, and he he was not happy about his time in the war. Yeah. You know, he did his best to behave humanely, um, but yeah, it, it strikes me that this may be part of his attempt to critique that. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that because I always find such a deeply humanistic bent to all of his work and, you know, yeah. to hear that he was, that he had participated in that and renounced mm -hmm. it and was openly critical of that. It just really kind of squares with everything that I can kind yeah. of glean from his actual films without actually knowing anything about him. You know, we come back, I go back to his, his deep humanism and the, the, the foregrounding of the the human drama at the very beginning and mm -hmm. you know something that struck me in the opening scene at the festival was you know he gets so much praise for his special effects work and and i think that the special effects work in this and we can talk about that later are just even even more impressive than what he did in rodan but mm -hmm. something i don't think he gets as much credit for are just his use of camera work and movement and framing to help tell the emotional and human stories of the the characters and i think about the the scene in which we see our four uh human characters that are kind of at the 
the center of the emotional apex of the film and you've got the um the two kind of couples and you know he just does some simple camera movements and some simple directing of actors so that you know exactly what has happened you know that one of them that there's a rupture between two of them you know that one of them is frustrated with the other and it's just simple guiding of the 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 camera from eyeline to the the other character's face and and yet he communicates so much with the 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 camera work and i'm i'm really really struck by uh it, it must have been developed as he was working in tandem with his work as a dramatic feature director as well yeah i'm also not sure if this was his very first film in like cinemascope toho scope whatever mm-hmm. they wanted to call it widescreen mm-hmm. essentially but you know i watched yeah. rodan and this back to back and that was like immediately struck <laughs> me with this like yeah very wide aspect ratio and very colorful scenery and i was like damn all right, we're here now. So yeah. I don't know. He just, I mean, that's a pretty big difference yeah. as a director and cinematographer. And I feel like, like he didn't even miss a beat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But impressive yeah. to me. Um, no, it, it is. It's really, it's gorgeous. Right. Mm-hmm. Why don't we talk a little bit about the special effects in this one? Cause I think this, sure. you know, we talked a lot about his use of models and everything in the last film, but I think there's something about the, the use of effects in this film that while we we had you know a giant robot at the very beginning it strikes me just how much more seamless things appeared to be mm-hmm. in the um, the use of the effects the matte paintings the the move between models and sets and traditional photography i, I was really shocked at how effective everything was put together yeah i think the highlight for me is the opening kind of earthquake scene that just mm. looks so sick and just so grand in scope and yeah organic like it, i mean you know i said this earlier but like you're really watching something kind of fall apart and implode yeah. in the camera you know yeah i just think that that's so cool i also love the mysterians costumes <laughs> you know like yeah i yeah there's a big monster at the beginning for like a second just to kind of probably satiate some expectations mm-hmm. or whatever but i just love that as opposed to the ornate and kind of elaborate costuming of our previous monster villains like the mysterians are just like dudes in power ranger helmets <laughs> and capes and it's just like i kind of just love it i think yeah. it's great you know <laughs> Yeah. And then, you know, when, when the scientists go to visit the Mysterians, they get their own capes, right? And uh, mm-hmm. I find that that delightful as well. But uh, yeah, I'm yeah. a big fan of the uh, spaceship kind of set too. Yeah. Reminding me a lot of like Forbidden Planet or mm-hmm. um, even one of the later Ghidorah films has something similar in it, mm-hmm. which uh, is pretty cool. I, I'm also struck by when we actually get into the the final battle sequence or the final uh the final confrontation on the bridge of the ship the we have those mm-hmm. giant cylinders and it it's just gorgeous and otherworldly and it's it's really remarkable right just the the scale yeah. of it you know mm-hmm. i i think it's really easy to think of these films as being inexpensive or kind of cheaply produced at times 
and mm -hmm. this is just lavish the sets uh here are just really really impressive yeah for sure i also love the fedora wearing laser blast <laughs> hero at the very end <laughs> <laughs> so my closing thoughts on this one unless you had something else was i think one of the themes that i found so fascinating about this or just something in general that i want to discuss you know there's very much this critique of scientific expansionism and of again like this kind of hubris of man and there's a line in particular towards the beginning that really struck me where they were talking about their potential or their previous use of nuclear weapons where they had kind of mm -hmm. ruined their previous planet. Mm -hmm. And one of the people was like, you'd have to almost not be human to use a weapon like that. It's just a little, you know, yeah. throwing a little shade around. But I, what I think is interesting about these films in particular, you know, as a person with my beliefs in my background, I guess, whenever I see the trope of like pushing back against science at large as a concept, it almost always is in service of a larger narrative that is like smuggling in really regressive religious ideas. And so that my alarm bells kind of always go off when I start to hear that. But like, there's never ever this moment where it turns into like this. And that's why we really need faith or God or Jesus or any of that yeah. moment in these films like that just isn't even a part of the equation he is still kind of contrasting it with like the natural world as it exists you know and it's just kind of a call for compassion and for peace and at the end that becomes very didactic like they kind of just say that <laughs> yeah. you know but i just always i just thought that that was really interesting how all my alarm bells are going off because i'm expecting one thing being raised in a certain culture mm -hmm. and to see Another culture kind of handled those same themes in a way that is entirely secular was, I mean, one, really refreshing, but two, just really interesting to me. I understand exactly what you're saying, that, you know, there's so much latent anti-science hysteria mm -hmm. in our country, yeah. and it's so often controlled, especially yeah. by the religious right in our mm -hmm. country. And yeah, that, that's uh, kind of what I'm reacting to inherently yeah. whenever I start to hear these talking points, you know? yeah. 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 But I think, you know, you know, Honda was at that time where scientists were, were doing things that, that, yeah, there's, they were playing God. And I think we they probably we, seem pretty scary. Yeah. Because yeah. it was, you know, well, and I think, and I think we see it today too, in just in different ways. You know, I think about scientists working with AI in really mm. irresponsible ways or, I think especially about like tech companies kind of behaving mm -hmm. irresponsibly. Sure. Yeah. And, sure. and I think that there is this kind of move to, to think that, well, Hey, it, it doesn't matter. We can, we can do whatever we want to. And, and, and who cares mm -hmm. what the consequences are. And so I think that, that, yeah, I, th I, I think you're exactly right. I think that unfortunately so much anti-science right now comes from, it comes from conservative Christians. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're, you're right. Especially on the heels of COVID. I'm very, uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I'm very sensitive to these kind of, <laughs> oh, you just can't trust scientists talking know. points, you know, know. but I this know. is something so completely different that yeah. it's yeah. probably unfair for me to have that reaction, but it's also an interesting reaction to have and then see how the film mm -hmm. plays out and handles that theme completely yeah. differently. 
you know no, i think that's i think that's a fair reaction to have coming where we are right now you know we we view yeah. these films within our own context right mm -hmm. uh as much as we try to step out of that so yeah yeah and yeah. and i i want to echo your you know the, there is that theme throughout though too of the call for peace and call for mm -hmm. kind of this this unity among nations and you see nations yeah. coming together to try to solve the the problem of the mysterians and there's even mm -hmm. that moment where japan says hey you know the united states and russia you guys are going to have to get your shit together <laughs> and, and realize that the mysterians are more of a threat than either of you are to each other yeah and, yeah. and i think that that to me is really refreshing as well that, yeah i think that it maybe feels i think some viewers could come away from it thinking it's pretty cheesy but especially in the uh political context in which it was created and just generally as a position to be putting forward of like this kind of dissolving of borders and working together on a, a global level as opposed to some like these nationalistic tendencies that are so pervasive it's really quite radical and quite bold and just something that i personally really really feel and yeah it's an interesting way to approach that theme for sure yeah well, the last film that we have to talk about is Varen the Unbelievable, which for me was my least favorite of the films. Yeah, uh, not only was it my least favorite, but, you know, I said that while Mysterians wasn't my favorite, it was the most thematically interesting. I think uh -huh. Varen is pretty considerably <laughs> the least thematically interesting. I, yes. Mm, yeah. You know. We went a while on the Mysterians. I'm not sure how much yeah. well, we can come out of this to match that, but yeah. Well, it, it, you know, in reading about it, 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 it looks mm -hmm. like you know, it was originally conceived for television. It was going to be told yeah. in 30-minute mm -hmm. chunks. This is why it went back to black and white. It's good to know that it's also, by most people who are even bigger aficionados of Honda's work, mm -hmm. Uh, it's also considered to be his weakest film, so I'm glad I didn't just feel yeah. like he had taken a giant step back on myself. It sounds like there were a lot of uh, challenges while filming. There were mm -hmm. a lot of budgetary constraints. You know, if I don't know if you noticed this, but there were um, some stock footage shots that were used in the Mysterians that were repeated for Varen, and mm. uh, there's shots of planes flying in formation that break off and i was like oh wait a minute this is the same shot that i saw mm -hmm. in, in the mysterians and so you yeah, see this I, kind of recycled footage uh, throughout it i didn't notice that in particular but that does he did do that in some <laughs> yeah. of these godzilla films even where he would reuse like shots that he had done in yes. several films which <laughs> was uh something i have mixed feelings about but i kind of understand it you know um he was turning these yeah. things out <laughs> yeah for sure like yeah I, I thought this was okay i still liked it because i thought there were things i could hold on to and mm -hmm. i just generally like this stuff a lot so it's yeah. pretty easy to get me to at least at a baseline yeah that was fun but i think i read that even like in his later years people asked him about it and he was like yeah that was that one wasn't it you know <laughs> and i don't even know that he how much he considered it his own fault because like yeah i was just reading a bit about it too and it's just like people kept changing their minds as to how they wanted to do it and what mm -hmm. funding they were giving him. And they had to like blow up certain scenes to make it widescreen again, which yeah. nobody wants that, you know, yeah. like, like what a nightmare as a cinematographer and a director yeah. to be like, 
oh yeah, this exact thing that you planned. Yeah. We need to like completely change it. Sorry. Yeah. But you know, when it started, I was actually like pretty stoked that it was in black and white just because I'm such a big fan of black and white cinematography. And also, I don't know, it just seemed like a, maybe a more modest affair where it's just kind of bringing things back to basics and not necessarily doing all this crazy high sci-fi stuff, which I love, but it was cool to see to me at least that he was just kind of doing something more stripped back and simple after that it's less encouraging to know that that was by like that was forced upon him and not something that he chose to do and like it was supposed to be like a small screen television affair and then they just kind of pulled the rug out like that's not fun but i at least really loved the the, uh the color palette of it i'm just it's very high contrast lots of stark blacks and you know whites and i just i'm i'm just really into that kind of thing so i Mm -hmm. like looking at it at least (laughs) yeah yeah i think for me the the thing that was hardest about it is that the the human element that he's so good at Mm -hmm. foregrounding is is it's there but it is it's the weakest part of the film Mm -hmm. it's it it feels like an afterthought it follows, you know, so much of the template of like Rodan, where you know the brother is off on, you know, the the expedition mm-hmm. goes missing or is killed, and now the sister and the romantic interest go off to look for for what happened. It all feels so cursory, and it hits so many plot points of his better films. You even have the explosives expert who comes in with the way to destroy Varen. And uh, we have this the special new explosive that I don't want getting into anyone else's hands, but you know this yeah this this can mm-hmm. this can destroy him and it it just has this kind of it feels really perfunctory at times and yeah it, it feels almost like like he's going through the motions on it yeah I was gonna say it feels like a Shiro Honda on autopilot or something like, yeah yeah just kind of a watered down version of all the other ideas he's already explored. Although I will say one thing I liked about it and like I was pretty stoked on it for like the first 20 or 30 minutes before it just kind of started to meander and drag. You know, I think the monster is pretty cool looking. I like Mm -hmm. that he's so similar to Godzilla, but it's also just something different. And, you know, in ways that are enough of a difference that it doesn't necessarily feel like just rehashing the same thing. Uh, I like his design a lot. But what I thought was really interesting was this idea of the people going into the jungle and sort of talking to this kind of religious cult almost that exists pretty much solely to appease him and keep everyone safe. It really feels like a meeting of Godzilla and the original King Kong film, mm. but not in the way that he literally did that in Godzilla versus King Kong. But like, uh, <laughs> you know, you have that exact same thing where like yeah. people show up and they're like, hey, what's what's going on here? And they're like, hey, don't do this. You'll piss off King Kong. And they're like, that's silly. And then yeah. that's exactly what happens. It's like the same thing, you know, but it's with a proto or maybe post Godzilla creature. So I thought that was interesting, at least at first. It, it kind of really falls apart by the end, I think. But yeah, it keeps it keeps taking these these narrative turns that feel less like an intentional through line and more like mm-hmm. narrative detours. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, I'm gonna be honest, at a certain point I kind of stopped paying attention. I was like, (laughs) I don't really know what this is doing. Like I'm kind of done with this, but you know, it's kind of fun, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And and I think to me the 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 most disappointing thing was that the model work and the 
the effects work felt like a step backwards from his from mm-hmm. Rodan and from uh, the Mysterians. The tanks and the uh, the vehicles. They just they didn't look quite as believable, yeah. As as they do, you know. I think he he had gotten such a great done such a great job at at mastering how to marry actual footage of tanks with the model work before, mm-hmm. and and here everything just felt like again he was constrained by this budget that that kept him from being able mm-hmm. to fully realize his vision. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly when you're first watching it, it feels like a regression of sorts. And then, I don't know, I kind of have to reassess the whole thing, like knowing now that it's yeah. like literally supposed to be TV and yeah. then they just kind of decided to make it a film instead. Like, of course, that's not going to look as good. And yeah. now you've mismarketed it and like you've incorrectly calibrated expectations for the audience. All that is unfortunate. But I, I will still say that the narrative is lacking yeah though i feel like that is also kind of led maybe less directly but also you know as a result of uh the kind of zigging and zagging of the expectations put upon him you know yeah yeah i think if you're if if you're constantly having budgets shift around if you're constantly having things the the expectations and the the exhibition shift then of course you're going to be changing the way that you're creating your script for this so yeah 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 again we have we have a lot of his 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 themes a lot of his ideas are all there the the hubris uh, i i did think that the the final death of the monster again i think it it was less impactful than rodan mm-hmm. less impactful than godzilla mm-hmm. but you see him trying to still reach for a lot of the same the same things yeah. that he's trying to do I got I got to say real quick when we got to the ending okay I mean I know you wrote it and so I guess you can do whatever you want but like why would this monster like eat fire out of the <laughs> sky and like like it's like oh what if we just make it so that he's hungry for the exact bomb we can use it's like okay I mean I guess I don't know that feels very easy yeah sure why not yeah that makes sense sure yeah, it it it's such a convenient way to get them these bombs. It really felt like they just like weren't sure. It was just like I don't know, sure that nothing else this is working. Mess, so let's but, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, it's a mess, but you know it is what it is. Yeah, uh, I think on a rewatch, knowing how much of a mess it is and knowing all the drama behind the scenes, I could probably have more fun with it. Like yeah. I would not be expecting much, and it would just be like a fun time. No, I, I I definitely hear you on that. It's it's imperfect. I still had fun with it though, right? You know, there are mm-hmm. still yeah, moments that are really enjoyable. Um, I think the the water battles are maybe the the most enjoyable parts of it. Um, it's the thing I haven't seen yet in a haven't really seen yet in any of the monster movies uh, of his. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some in some of the later Godzilla movies, uh, but. Uh, having the boats, having the the planes get snatched out of the sky was fun. Yeah, you know, it's it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I think that's a good <laughs> summary. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, yeah. Something earlier you said reminded me of like the rule of thumb in watching Godzilla films because there's like fucking forty of them and they are generally quite similar. It's like when you start watching one, it's like. 
And this is why I think there's definitely, I mean, to be honest with you, I like all of them, but there's definitely some, a large gradient in quality from film to film over the yeah. course of like 70 years, you know, but the general rule of thumb is like, how interesting are the people? Because that's going mm -hmm. to be your primary focus and the lens through which you view everything that's happening. And that's just something that I thought he was so good at where like yeah. all of these films, like there is an interesting dramatic story before the monsters show up and that's yeah. just like extra whereas on this one i mean yeah i was interested in it for a bit and then it just kind of started meandering and it lost me but yeah yeah that's that's typically that's typically the key ingredient in these I things agree. i think i agree i think it's the I, I think it's it's part of what makes this series so compelling mm -hmm. and i think it's and i think it's part of what makes the the modern godzilla franchise not quite as as compelling i think that you have paper thin human characters honestly mm -hmm. yeah you've got good actors I mean, but they're not you're not giving us anything yeah. real to work with yeah so i we already talked about my disdain for the 90s one but the one from 2014 i remember really liking in the theater i haven't seen it since mm -hmm. then so i'm just gonna put a question mark on that one for now same with the second one like i watched it again when it hit home video and i was thought it was mm -hmm. okay and that's probably true it's probably okay i watched godzilla versus kong when that came out and i i like that film a lot less the more i think about it but there is also something i think fundamentally wrong about americans making godzilla films like the idea that you would take the symbol of the of the trauma of the nuclear bomb and then just be like yeah but it's cool so we'll take that please yeah. and thank you and profit off of it and try to do the same thing and yeah. not really i mean you can't really have the same understanding of it yeah. as american filmmakers and you know at least so far i i'm i could be wrong but i don't think any of these films have really honestly addressed what godzilla is actually about at its core you know mm -hmm. yeah it almost yeah. feels like kind of gross to do something like that uh but i guess you know it is what it is but yeah yeah i'm not it, i'm not super into it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i you know again i enjoy them as diversions they're mm -hmm. they're they're fine yeah but i think it you're right it it removes the the weighty resonance that the best mm -hmm. of these films have and yeah it never approaches the the artistry and the the deep mm -hmm. thematic resonance of the especially the first godzilla movie which to me is mm -hmm. It's a it's a masterpiece, like you said. Um, yeah, this is this is a film that you know I've watched it multiple times, and every time I see it, I'm impressed that it still holds up as a film that is uh, full of such deep pathos, such deep feeling, mm -hmm. uh, and it you know the the giant monster attack stuff is there. And it's it, it's never played up as just a fun monster attack movie. It's it's played yeah, for for straight horror, right? Yeah, there's real stakes and real yeah. human collateral damage to that. And yeah, I mean that film is really just it's something else, you know. But I love how at a certain point Godzilla starts to be the good guy in these yeah. films, yeah, and in the later Honda films and just in the Showa era in general, and. You know, that might that probably seems a little strange if you're thinking about what he originally was meant to represent. Mm -hmm. But I kind of love how he just became such an iconic and beloved figure of Japanese culture that 
he was sort of reclaimed as this like symbol of resistance and fighting back against these yeah. other monsters, which are now kind of the placeholders for trauma and nuclear explosions and all this other yeah. stuff. I don't know though. Like I love both of those interpretations of the character. I just, I love the character. I just, every time I see a Godzilla film and he first shows up, I smile every single time. I just love him. <laughs> but again, even if we look at it from that way, I feel like it's still so inappropriate for Americans to just kind of, kind of yoink that and be like, yeah. yeah, I could do that too. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's something fundamentally icky about it, I but I, you. you know, I do remember at least the fight scenes were kind of cool in that last one. <laughs> so I guess yeah. that's something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Oh, Celeste, thank you so much for joining me yeah. today. This has been yeah, of uh, course. fantastic. I really, I really appreciate you being a part of the conversation and really digging, digging deeper into three films that I think people don't really pay as much attention to. And I think mm -hmm. because they're yeah. permanent library collections on the channel, I think that the tendency for these films is to just uh, ignore them or to to not not rush to see them because they're going to be around yeah. so uh, i'm glad we're shining a spotlight on these and uh hope to talk to you more about uh more of honda's films because uh we have a lot of them on the channel yeah i'd be i'd be super stoked to do like a part two when an appropriate amount of time has passed or whatever or yeah you know if you uh if you want to talk about any other number of films on the channel i'm I'm pretty much down to watch anything and awesome. I have fun analyzing anything, no matter how silly or shallow or deep or esoteric it is. This is fun for me. So, you know, awesome. That's great. I'm absolutely down to do it again. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, uh, I want to thank uh, all of our Patreon supporters once again for supporting the show. I want to thank our home network, Criterion Cast, for giving us a home to get the show out there. And uh, you can find out more from Criterion Cast, all the other shows, all the other reviews at CriterionCast.com. And uh, again, Celeste, thanks for joining me. Uh, where can people find you online? Sure. So you can probably find me lurking about in the Criterion Channel Facebook group. I tend to pipe up there every now and then. You can primarily find me on my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash at Celeste Lacabra, or you can just search that name. And if I've done something right, it should show up. Uh, <laughs> you can also find me on Instagram at Celeste Lacabra if you want to, you know, hang out there, be a little bit more intimate and see my unhinged slash thirst trap posting over there. That'll be fun. And I'm very active on Letterboxd, probably more so than any of these platforms. The username for that is not great for reading out on air on a podcast like that. Uh, it's flying veggie monster without the vowels with like with the vowels removed because it wouldn't fit. <laughs> so I'll just shoot you a link so that awesome. you can link it in the show notes. But I, I think I've got to change that username soon because, you know, I've been doing more of these guest spots and I'd like to have a clean letterbox.com slash whatever. Um, and all the names I'd like tend to uh, be too long. So yep. you'll figure that out. But you can definitely find me over there. You could probably search my name and find me too, hopefully. So those are my primary platforms. So uh, yeah, that's where I lurk about. Thanks again so much, Josh. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at CriterionCast.com and our website, CinemaCocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at criterionchannelsurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at criterioncast.com and support the work of Criterion Cast at patreon.com slash criterioncast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash joshhornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show. And for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss on a special Patreon-only bonus episode. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.